Uh, it's good to have you all with us today. Is it just me or is it a little hot this morning? It's a little toasty, right? The winds are, are there, but they're not at the same time, right? So it should be a fun, fun sermon, all right? Uh, two things before I get into it. First, I have some new uh, members to present to you, and I'm going to do that right now. Uh, and so, Eric and Jill Mitchell, could you please stand up there in the back right there? There they are. Eric and Jill Mitchell, uh, welcome. Let's give them a hand, right? All right. Um, they've been coming. You can see it. Yes, thank you. Uh, they've been coming for... Um, some time, and we've gone through our new member orientation, and I just really enjoyed getting to know them. They have uh, really just a fascinating story about how they got over here uh, that I'll let you uh, seek them out and find out something to do with animals and planes, all right? So it's just really cool. Um, so check it out, but I'm going to present them to you for membership. So if you are a Covenant member here and are in favor of receiving Eric and Jill Mitchell as members of Kahalui Baptist Church, let it be known by an I. And any opposed? All right, you're in. You're in. All right. So. Um, I'm going to ask them to stand in the back at the end of service, and they'll also be here for the next couple Sundays in the morning greeting you as you come in, too. Get to know them. Welcome them uh, as the Lord has welcomed us in Christ, and uh, praise God for continuing to uh, bless our church. Uh, so, Thank you, Eric and Jill. Welcome. And then second area, children's ministry and youth suggestion box. I mentioned this last week, right? Anywhere between uh, easily, easily on a Sunday morning, 15%, probably as high as 20 uh, of percent of people on our campus are juveniles. The vast majority of them are ages four and under. That's awesome, all right? So uh, the Lord has been blessing, right? Blessing, praise God, uh, which means we do have a need for uh, nursery uh, volunteers, nursery helpers. Uh, I would even encourage you, if you benefit as a mother or parent uh, in the nursery, then that you might consider serving in the nursery um, and helping out in those ways as well. So uh, please, we do have a, a big need for that. Second thing, we're going to be launching a children's and minist uh, youth ministry soon. There is a suggestion box in the back, what I want from all of you is you have a, on your bulletin a little tear out, a little tear out card, okay? The bulletin you had when you came in is a little tear out. Uh, whether you have children or not, whether it's been 40 years since you've had children that were considered children in youth ministry age or not, whether you're a young single person or not, or you are one of those children, I want to hear your suggestions for, for how you envision a children's youth ministry. There's a box back there. It's got a big sign that says suggestions for children and youth ministry, right? Drop it right in there after service. We're going to have that out there till October. Now, again, that doesn't mean we're going to do everything that we receive, but I want to hear. I want to hear what you guys have to do and say, and please put your name on there so we can follow up. Uh, anonymous suggestions are about as good as the signature on the bottom, okay? So uh, please help us in that regard. Uh, so thank you. It's back there. All right. John 12, John 12, 37 through 50. Title of the sermon, Hard Words and Hopeful Words. Hard Words and Hopeful Words. Now, there are seasons of your life, I would imagine. Seasons of uh, your family life, individual life, work life, church life, that maybe are particularly difficult and trying. 
that maybe at times uh, you feel perhaps like you are being pushed to the max, to your limit, like you're about to snap. Now, I would ask, in those times, we have all had them, or you will have them. In those times, is it not easier? Is it not relieved when you have the support, encouragement, and love of those closest to you, your family members, perhaps your spouse? There, everybody else can be against you or saying things to you, but when you have the, the close support of your family members, is it not much more bearable? And then conversely, there's also seasons where a trial seems just like that, absolutely unbearable, and in part it's because you feel abandoned by those closest to you. In part, it's because they have left you or, in their, or they question you and it causes you to doubt and have fear and despair when those closest to you are not supporting you or behind you. Now, this, in essence, is what John addresses in John 12, 37 through 50. See, we'll talk about how he addresses that, but it's actually the final closing scene of Act 1. Right? So I said the, the gospel according to John has how many parts? Two main parts. The gospel has two main parts. The first half of the gospel, the book of signs, where John records seven signs of Christ. Uh, John's gospel is unique. He doesn't have uh, the, the baptism of Jesus. He doesn't have the Last Supper recorded. He doesn't have a lot of these staples. There's no exorcisms in the book of John. There's none of these things that we see in a lot of the other gospels. He structures his narrative around seven signs in the first half, all attesting to the identity and deity and person and work of Jesus. It's the first half. The first half is going to come to a close here. Act 1. The curtain is about, the, the lights are going to go dim. The curtain's going to fall on the stage. And we're all going to be left wondering, what in the world is going on? This is the way he has structured his narrative. The second half of John is known as the book of glory. Because it is entirely concerned with the last period, the last week, actually even the last night of the life of Jesus. So he covers in 12 chapters the whole life of Jesus from eternity past into the future. He covers the whole life. And then the last chapters, 13 to 21, is all that last final hours of Jesus. So the book of glory uh, where the final and ultimate sign is given that we're going to enter after we tackle Exodus 1 through 19. So we're starting Exodus uh, in November, the first Sunday of November. Really, really exciting to be reading that. But this is, in essence, the end, the closing of that first chapter of John. So this is going to bring together a lot of themes. It's going to sum up a lot of threads that John has included. That last section, 44 through 50, really just packs in all sorts of things that John has mentioned till now. It just kind of packs it in, and we're going to see uh, what he has for us this morning. So let's pray, and we're going to do something special in this prayer. This is kind of out on left field, I know, 
Um, we're going to pray for a sister church of ours, Emmanuel Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, why are we going to pray for them? One, because our church is intertwined with theirs in more ways than you may realize. Uh, many, many, many of our students go to church up there. Uh, their pastor came and preached here two years ago. Fantastic. Uh, pastor Ryan Fullerton, uh, he has encouraged my family greatly. He's one of the reasons through his sermon and preaching that we are so blessed to have so many children now. Uh, he helped us think through in a more biblical manner the blessing and joy of children. So uh, we are very intertwined with that church. They just had some of their elders visit this summer. Jay Haynes, Melissa Haynes, uh, elders, pastors at that church. So why are we praying for them this morning? Because uh, one of their pastors, one of their elders, uh, his wife, they have six children, uh, two of them special needs, I believe. His wife, 36 years old, died very unexpectedly. Um, very, very unexpectedly. So we have many of our students, many of our church family who are just in pain. Uh, that church is in pain. Satan, I have no doubt, is, is rearing his teeth uh, at that church and the family by striking a shepherd. Um, so we're going to pray for them. We're going to pray for them. Um, so let's pray. Father, Lord, as we see in your word that you are sovereign over life and over death, not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your will. And when death strikes, Father, it is painful still. It hurts still because that was not part of your design. And yet, we read your word and trust that everything you do is good. Nothing is to be rejected. So we thank you for receiving uh, our sister, Ms. Shreve, into glory. We thank you that those who believe in you, the resurrection and the life, will never perish. And Lord, I pray as their church is hurting, grieving as a people who have hope, that you would comfort your people. Comfort them by your spirit. Comfort the husband, the pastors, to minister to this man and his children, his six children. Lord, I pray that the women in the church would step in and, and help and bear the burdens left by a faithful mother of six. Lord, we pray for our students, our families who are affected by this death, some in Oahu, some in Kentucky, some here. We pray that your spirit would uh, be a rock and refuge to them in this time, that you would comfort them. Father, we ask that you would be with Emmanuel Baptist, that this tragic circumstance would unite them, Give them a zeal for the mission that they are on and to press on in kingdom work, knowing that your purposes are invincible. So we pray that you would do this, Lord. I, I ask for uh, the many others this morning who are suffering in this room, perhaps maybe through unexpected death, the three up country who died in the head-on collision. Father, there are many, many opportunities to bear the hope of the gospel, the good news that in Christ there is life forevermore. Lord, may we be ambassadors of Christ, uh, ambassadors of reconciliation, preaching your word, which is life. 
Would you grant life this morning through John? In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Continue to pray for them. Reach out to them if you know them. Uh, Number one, point number one, hard words for hard hearts. Hard words for hard hearts. That's going to cover 37 through 43. Now, I said in some ways, in some ways, John's going to be addressing uh, how we kind of feel alone and abandoned. He's going to be addressing this in this section. What do I mean by that? Well, John 1 told us in the beginning, in the prologue, Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. They rejected him. Now, this wide-scale rejection of Christ's own people needs to be accounted for, right? How can his own Jewish people as a Messiah, how can his own people, his own family, not even accept him as the Messiah? I mean, didn't he pretty much fail at his mission to rescue his people? If most of them reject him, And as a Gentile, reading this in the first century, if his own people didn't even believe in him, why should I? You see the tension raised here. The problem surrounding the wide-scale rejection of his own people, rejecting him, that needs to have some sort of answer for it. And John addresses that wide-scale unbelief here. And the answer is far from failing at what he came to do, the unbelief of his people was foretold and in some ways required, necessitated by the prophets, Isaiah. One pastor said, Bill Barkley, I saw, he said, one aspect of saving faith is recognizing that God doesn't always work according to our plan." One aspect of faith is recognizing, realizing, grappling with that God doesn't always work in ways that make sense to us. And so as John answers, he makes some hard statements, hard words for hard hearts about unbelief. This is hard. You get verse 37 up there on the screen. This is what he says, though he, Jesus, had done so many signs, this is the the kind of summation here in, in 1237, though Jesus had done so many signs, still, still they did not believe in him. And as a result, it says he hid himself from the public at large. So this section, not only is it the end of section one, but what we're about to see is the last in John's narrative, the last public words of Jesus. Everything else from here on out is only to his inner core of disciples. John 13 on forward is only to his core of disciples. This is his last public speech. He is going to hide himself from them as a result of their unbelief. Now, what is some application right off the bat for us? Right off the bat, just even though he had done so many signs, they still did not believe. Here's the application Beware. These are hard words for hard hearts, right? So I don't know who I'm talking to right now, right? Beware ignoring the conviction of the Spirit and excusing unbelief 
and disobedience in your life. Do not toil and take lightly disobedience and rejecting the Spirit's work. Why? Because a day may come, a day may come that you seek Jesus and find he is nowhere to be found because he has hid himself from you due to your hardness of heart. That's hard. Hard words for hard hearts. Sometimes our hearts in our disobedience, we need hard words. Sometimes a hard word can break a hard heart and make it a soft heart. So whatever it is, beware ignoring the conviction of the Spirit, the signs He is doing in your life to offer you life and turning you away from it. Say, I want my own way. Beware. So what was the reason for this unbelief? How did this come about? Theologians refer to this as a judicial hardening. In other words, God is exercising His divine prerogative as judge on these people. In essence, he is giving them what they wanted in the first place. You don't want the Messiah. You don't want the bread of life. He's not a Messiah after your choosing. Okay, you will not have him. He's giving them their desires. This is a judicial hardening. Now, this is a hard passage to grapple with, I admit. It's very hard. Look what it says, verse 38. They still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, Who has believed what he had heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 39. Therefore, they could not believe. They did not have the power to believe. For again, Isaiah said, next verse, verse 40. He has blinded. Whoa. He. Who's that he referring to? God. God. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of them, of him. Now, Isaiah, even later, if if you read the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is the most quoted book in the New Testament, by the way. It is the most quoted book in the New Testament. Uh, They consider it, theologians from times past consider it the fifth gospel because they referred so much to it. So they, later on, Isaiah is pleading with God to show himself in more merciful ways because God commissions Isaiah, Isaiah 6.10, I saw the Lord high lifted up and, and Isaiah, the famous here am I, send me passage. God commissions Isaiah, but the part we don't read in chapter six is that he tells Isaiah to go into a ministry where he's going to be rejected by everybody. It's Isaiah 6.10, that's where this passage comes from. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see and turn and I would heal them. Now, Isaiah, you're going to go preach to a people and they're not going to reply. Why aren't they going to reply? Because I'm hardening their hearts. And Isaiah sees this and pleads with God, show yourself in more merciful ways. Like, pastor, that's in the Bible? That's in the Bible. And God's point His plan is that he brings his purposes about in ways that seem strange to us. That's exactly what Isaiah says. These are strange, your ways. They are strange to us that God brings about his purposes in this manner. Now, 
We're going to talk more about this in time, but I want you to remember a few things about this hard passages and passages like this. We talk about 2 Thessalonians 2.11. You should check that out. Just write that in your margin. 2 Thessalonians 2.11. God sends them a strong delusion. Whew. Passages like this, we've got to remember a few things. This is not the judgment of God against a good people. God isn't judging good people or even morally neutral people. These are people who are in rebellion, persistent unbelief against his person and his work, and therefore refuse to believe. Two, we must remember that God's hardening, the way God hardens people is in part the very same, through the very same means through which he brings salvation. What do I mean by that? It's to say that as the gospel is preached, as the gospel is preached, some respond and are saved, and some refuse and are hardened. And this is the way he hardens people. That is to say, the word of God, the gospel, always has an effect, a revealing effect, if you will. We're going to talk a lot about hardening of hearts in Exodus. And those of you who know the narrative of Exodus already know why. So we'll talk more about that in time. John then moves on and addresses a type of faith. So he addresses unbelief first, right? Wide-scale rejection foretold by the prophets, necessitated in some ways in order to bring about actually the very deliverance that Jesus would die for the world and save all people. So through the very rejection of his people, far from failing to save, it actually is the catalyst that accomplishes his mission. Oh, Romans 11. Oh, the depths and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Awesome. So then he moves on from unbelief and addresses a type of faith that I fear is present among many. It's a type of faith. Why do I say it's a type of faith? Because it's a type of faith that is insufficient to save. Verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. There it is. There's a type of faith. They believe in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they should not be put out of the synagogue. Matthew Henry said this. There is cause to question the sincerity of that faith, which is either afraid or ashamed to show itself. For those who believe with the heart ought to confess with the mouth, Romans 10. See, they had a faith, a type of faith, that was motivated by signs and works, but falls short of saving faith. John's introduced us to this already in his gospel. John chapter 2, we read this, 23 to 25, says this, after the first miracle, right? You remember the, the changing of water into wine. This is what chapter 2 says. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So they had a type of faith that saw a sign and, and wanted to kind of follow that sign, but it wasn't a saving faith that would cause Jesus himself to even entrust himself to them. So this is a type of faith that wasn't enough to motivate them to forsake everything and follow Jesus. Maybe they were on the right track. That was a better track, but it's an insufficient track. 
It was more in line with what James would call dead faith. Nick referred to it earlier. Faith without works is dead. So there is a type of faith that is a that looks like real faith, but it's actually a dead faith. And James calls that worthless religion. So I ask you this morning, what's your faith? Is it a living faith? A saving faith? You say, yes, yes, pastor. I believe in God with all my heart. It's going to sting. You ready? I love you guys so much. Then why do you deny him by your actions? Why do you proclaim with your mouth and live with your life two different things? To proclaim to love the Lord with all your heart and yet to remain, to choose to remain in a life of sin and disobedience demonstrates your true affections lie elsewhere. Now a husband can say, I love my wife. A husband can say, I understand it's not good to get divorced. Or a spouse can say this, uh, a wife can say this too, so not picking on spouses. I'm just using a husband because I am a husband. If I use a wife, I'll get attacked by the wives. Okay, so a husband can say all the right things, can believe with his mind. It's good to be married. It's, it's good to not do these things and yet still go out and do something grotesque and either, I don't know, whatever it is, have an affair, do something, right, break the vow. He can say all the right things with his head, but his actions show something else, which then tells that his true affections lie elsewhere. Now, why do I use that example? Because that's the example the Lord uses, you adulterous people. James 4. Choosing to remain in a life of sin and disobedience, beloved, demonstrates the true love of your heart is not Christ. Now, they refused to confess Jesus. So these, these religious leaders, they refused to confess Jesus. In part, one of the parts that it says was for fear of losing their place in the synagogue, that they would be put out. And I fear many today refuse to confess Jesus, wholehearted devotion to Christ for fear of the consequences in their life. Maybe the consequences of following Christ would mean I... Lose my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my spouse. Maybe the fear of, of having to find another living situation because obedience to Jesus means I might lose my place in my house or losing my place in work and having to find another work because the work I'm doing is, is not honoring to the Lord. They feared being put out of the synagogues. Is that you? What do you fear? What are you holding on to, trusting in, and fearing? There's another statement here that's really, really, really important. Very revealing. Why did they do it ultimately? Go to uh, verse, let's see, verse 42 right there. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, right? So, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. And then there's that very important verse 43 right here that all of us struggle with. For they, this is a reason now, for they loved the glory that comes from what? Man. And there's a really important word right after that. More than the glory that comes from God. 
That's important. That word more. It's important. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. If you choose glory from men over glory from God now, you will get neither for all of eternity. If you choose now the pleasures of glory, praise, honor, veneration from men now, over the glory of God, you will get neither for all of eternity. Now, a good question to ask, what does it mean to get glory that comes from God? Because they love the glory that comes from man more, and that's bad, we're getting that, than the glory that comes from God. So what does it mean to love the glory that comes from God? In what sense are we glorified in God or from God? You ever ask yourself that? C.S. Lewis mentions this basic picture of pleasure of wanting to please our parents or of a dog wanting to please its master, a spouse wanting to please his wife or husband. What does it mean? It's the confidence of knowing that what you did is pleasing in the sight of your creator. It's the confidence that comes from knowing and hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. It's the hearing from a son from his dad, which we all want and sometimes don't get and creates problems. It's the hearing of a phrase, son, I'm proud of you. Proud of you. It's that basic pleasure that is actually a good thing that is ingrained in us as part of our image of the Creator that one day we want to hear ultimately and above all more than we want to hear, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's what it means to receive glory from God. And we know that it's not prideful because if God is pleased with us, then we know elsewhere in Scripture that it's because God is working in us to will and to do His good pleasure. So it all goes back to glory to God. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, it all goes around. And so God gets all, all the glory. Choosing instead to please men rather than God, is self-destructive. It's self-destructive. It's taking something small, the praise of men. Why is that small? Because it's temporary. They're going to be gone. The Lord says through Isaiah the prophet, why do you fear man in whose nostrils is the breath of life? Don't be afraid of them. Why do we fear this small thing? It's small. It's taking that small thing, the thoughts and opinions and whatever of man, and making it a big thing. And making a, a big thing the thoughts of God. What does God think about me? What will, God, his, what will his verdict be on my life, on my behavior? It's making this big thing a very small thing. We call this the fear of man. So I want to talk a little bit. I want to flesh that out a little bit because it's something I struggle with. Let's just put Pastor Randy in the spotlight. You're like, man, Pastor, you're being hard on me. 
Let's put Pastor Randy in the spotlight. Pastors, preachers everywhere, aspiring pastors one day underneath, uh, Tim Keller says, underneath every sermon is a subtext from a pastor. Do you like me? Right? It's a little fear of man that pastor has to wrestle with. Will they think well of me? And that is evil. It's evil. So I struggle with it too. We're all in the same playing field here, beloved. So I want to tease this out a little bit. So how do you know if you're like this? What does it look like? Okay, I know, Pastor, I don't want to please men more than I please God. How would I know? What would it play out like practically? Some questions. Ed Welch is helpful here in his book. If you struggle, some, some of you struggle with this. If you uh, a, a, sometimes anxi- certain anxiety disorders, what the world would call anxiety disorders, or uh, certain things of this nature, if, if that's maybe you, I don't know, th- this would be a very helpful book for you to read. Maybe you struggle with anxiety attack or, or some sort of fear type thing. This would be a very good book for you uh, when people are big and God is small. It's a good title. When People Are Big and God is Small by Ed Welch. He asks these questions to know whether this is something we're needing to work on. Number one, are you overcommitted? Are you overcommitted? Sometimes you might call it stretched thin. Sometimes you might call it having a lot on your plate. Now, how does that relate to... uh, this idea of loving the glory of man more than the glory of God. How does that relate to being overcommitted? Because you can't say no when people ask you something. Oh, I see. You can't say no to people's requests. You're afraid of what they might think of you. And so what happens, you say yes and yes and yes and yes and yes and yes and I'll do this. You're the yes man. Everybody loves you because you say yes to everybody and you get so spread thin and you start dropping biblical responsibilities and what started out as a good thing becomes a bad thing because you aren't able to be God. Are you overcommitted? Number two. Do you need certain people to respect and like you? Do you need certain people to respect you and like you? Man, I, I, maybe you get so frustrated over, uh, man, my, I just need my spouse to stop. Do not call me a liar. Whatever. Do not say this. Or my parents or my children. I, I, th- they said I was a bad parent or whatever it is. Do you need certain people to respect and like you? Number three, do you fear being exposed as an imposter? Do you fear being exposed as an imposter, much like Judas, perhaps? Number four, are you always second-guessing your decisions because of what others might think? I was going to do this, but what are they going to think this about this, and then they're not going to, right? They're not going to agree with me, and then they maybe look mad at it, right? Are you always second-guessing your decisions because of what others might think? Number five, is your dieting or exercise or clothing mainly about impressing others? Mainly about impressing others. 
Number six, do you feel empty or meaningless often? You say, wow, how is that related to, to loving the glory of man more than the glory that comes from God? Because maybe you're seeking that glory elsewhere and all these other things and all that's leaving you with is emptiness because you're seeking it on the wrong places. Number seven, do you get easily embarrassed? Easily embarrassed. Do you, do you find your pride regularly and very easily um, attacked? So not, that's not a good word. Embarrassed, we'll just say it. We'll leave it there. My mind's flatlining, right? Do you get easily embarrassed? Number eight, do you use little white lies to cover up? Do you use little white lies to cover up? Here's one. I didn't get your text message. Whew. I didn't see your phone call. <laughs> little white lies. When maybe you did, you just didn't want to deal with it right then or right on and on. Number nine, do you avoid people when you're not at your best? In other words, we all have this kind of uh, thing, right? I don't want to come to church because I'm, I'm not in a good place of being and, and people are going to ask me, how are you, right? We're talking about in our small groups. How are you really doing? And I know I'm going to get that question and, and I don't really want to answer that question, so I'm going to be elsewhere and then I'm back at the previous question, which is using little white lies to cover up why I wasn't there. Ouch. Do you avoid people when you're not at your best? Number 10, do you disobey God to keep the approval of people? Do you disobey God to keep the approval of people? Number 11, do other people make you angry or depressed? You just make me so... Or depressed. Man, I'm just so sad because of what they don't like me or they're mad at me, so I'm just going to lay awake at night, all night, and, and just think about this person. It's a hard battle. It's a hard battle. Is your mood, 12, is your mood dependent on how others express approval or disapproval of you? Man, I posted this thing on Facebook, and I only got like two likes, and I thought it was awesome. Man, having a bad day, right? Whatever it is, this is is my generation, all right? So is your mood dependent on how others express approval or disapproval of you? Now, if that described you at all, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because one person raise their hand. That's that's me, all right? I'm guilty. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'm quite certain every single one of our hands would be up. Now, if that's you, all it means is we may need to recalibrate your views of God and people in a certain area. Right? We just need to do some recalibration. Now, the good news in that, you're like, man, I'm feeling really, really down, Pastor, right now. I'm like, all right, thank you for just beating me down. I'm laid bare, okay? Now, um, here's what I want to encourage you with. The good news is that's exactly what Jesus came to do. Amen? It's exactly what he came to do. Whoever sees me sees the Father, to recalibrate your view of God and of His ways and how He works. Now, these were hard words for hard hearts. Now, the Bible, when it tells us sad things, I love uh, my brother John Piper here says, when the Bible tells us sad things, it doesn't tell us sad things to leave us sad. It tells us sad things to make us glad, ultimately, to show the beauty 
of the light against the darkness, to show the beauty of sight against blindness, to show the beauty of health against sickness and infirmity. When the Bible shows us dark things, it's that we might be drawn to the light. So my hope is that seeds this morning will be sown today that will set you free from slavery to sin today and give you life in Christ today. Because I know some of you are living in this, staying in this. Now, how do I know that? I know it because in a group this size, it's impossible that it wouldn't be. So number two, hard words for hard hearts. Number two, hopeful words, hopeful words for hard hearts. 44 through 50, hopeful words for hard hearts. Maybe that's you this morning. You came in and there's just flatline. You feel nothing. You don't seem like there's anything. And my hope is that the Spirit will do something so that at the end it's beep, boop. There's hope. It's hopeful words for hard hearts. Now, this is Jesus' final summation and plea for faith in John to the public. Now, this passage, like I said, it ties a bunch of things together. It's pretty short, so I just want to kind of survey it for you, starting in verse 44. Uh, Whoever believes in me, Jesus cried out and said, he cried out, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Now, this is again tying back to the theme of Jesus being the only begotten son, the unique son from the father, bearing a message from him that is authoritative. And Jesus says, whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Going back to the blind man. Remember the blind man who was born blind from birth and Jesus gives him sight. He saw Jesus versus the Pharisees who had been seeing all along were actually blinded. So whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Verse 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. It's going back to Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. I am light. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness during the Feast of Tabernacles. Number 40, verse 47, if anyone hears my word, hears them and does not keep them, I do not judge him. Going back to chapter 6, 7, and 8, for I did not come to judge the world, verse chapter 3, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. Going back to John chapter 5, how the words of Moses will rise up and judge them on that last day. The words that I have spoken more than the words of Moses now will judge on the last day. Verse 49, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Verse 40, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore I say, as the Father told me. And wrapping all up into the prologue, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So that's how John's kind of tying it all together, his final plea, if you will, on this, this first half. The obedience of the Son, verse 49, is seen. The Son always obeys the works of the Father, and because of that, the Father will glorify the Son as He is obedient unto death. 
Now, verse 50, it's a beautiful promise. It's a beautiful promise here. When obedience to God's commands looked like death, because I said some things in here to some of you who maybe you're like, man, I need to change my life. Something's wrong in my heart, but it looks really hard to do, Pastor Randy. When obedience to God's commands looks like death, hear his promise of life, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What is Jesus doing here? Is this just like random words? No, 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 no. We have to know our Bibles. Jesus never speaks random words. Remember I told you Jesus is the greater Moses, leading a greater exodus of people to a greater redemption. Deuteronomy 32, some of Moses' final words to his people. 46 through 47. Check this out. Moses speaking to Israel. Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. Here it is, verse 47. For it is no empty word to you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. These words of God, they're no empty words. They are your very life. And what does Jesus say here in our passage? Back to John 12. What does he say? I know that his commandment is what? Eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. God's commandments are life. Hear the invitation this morning from the Lord. Do not be satisfied, no longer, beloved, with temporary pleasures of the praises of men. If all of us this morning, if the Lord would just ignite all of you to just live with zeal for the glory of God, with urgency for his mission and his work and his kingdom, whether you're five years old or 16 years old or 60 years old, if he would ignite all of us to where we were all as a members, as body of Christ, firing on all cylinders, oh, the work that would be done in mouth. Just with this room. So I want to close with the invitation that Jesus cried out. Whoever believes in me. Whoever. Who are you? You're whoever. Whoever believes in me. Believes not in me. But in him who sent me. And going to verse 46. I love this. I have come into the world as light. As light. To see, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. That word remain can be translated abide. Same, same word that you'll see in John 14, 15, when Jesus says, Abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. Abide in me, so that whoever believes in me, Jesus is saying, will not remain in darkness. Would you run to Christ this morning? Run to him, whoever you are. Believe in him, and you will have eternal life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these were hard words this morning, many of them. I pray that they were spoken in love and that your spirit would ignite faith through them. Father, would you use these hard words from Isaiah, from the Gospel of John, and bring life and soft hearts.
Lord, may you grant that we would not abide in darkness, but that we would walk in the light as you are light. And would you grant life and get all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now is a time of invitation in this room to my right and your left. I'd invite you, if you would like prayer about anything, to come down, and I would love to pray with you and for you. Thank you. God bless.